This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to another edition of Lens Me Your Ears. This is the podcast where we check out a new film in cinemas and then talk about some older films that may be connected through genre, director, actor, or otherwise. My name is Karsten Knox, and I am a film blogger. Uh, my blog is called Flaw in the Iris. It's at halifaxbloggers.ca. And I'm also the movie guru at CTV Morning Live. And I'm Stephen Cook, aging Halifax film nut and arts writer for localexpress.ca. Stephen, you're not aging at all. <laughs> Come on. Eternally young. <laughs> Today, we are talking about that uh, indie tour that many of you probably have never heard of. Yeah, yeah. nobody goes to these films at no, all. No, no. It's it, Martin Scorsese, that's it. Martin Scorsese and his new film, Silence. Martin Scorsese, of course, everyone knows who he is. Italian-American master filmmaker, feature filmmaker, documentarian, and a producer. I didn't even realize this until I looked into his. He produced The Grifters. He executive produced You Can Count on Me, Kenneth Lonergan's first feature. He produced Young Victoria, and he produced Life Itself, the documentary for Roger Ebert. So this guy is, I mean, he is everywhere. Uh, He's an actor, and it was a big part of the American cinema of the 1970s, one of the Young Turks, along with Coppola, Schrader, Rafelson, Friedkin, Altman, Pakula, all those guys. (laughs) So I, I have liked a lot of Scorsese and there's a lot of his stuff that has kind of left me a little cold. I find that some of his Catholic guilt uh, and masculine (laughs) obsessions are a little hard to take in some of his films. Oh, so you must have loved Silence. (laughs) You know, I thought it was a powerful film and I thought it was a thoughtful film. I think almost all of his films are at least worth seeing at least once, but not all of them are worth revisiting. I don't know that I'll ever rewatch Silence, Um, but I, I did even though it's a long film, it's two hours and 40 minutes, it is a film that I, I'm glad I saw. I thought it was effective in, in what it was, you know, it was trying to do. Uh, the film is uh, written by Scorsese and his longtime collaborator, Jay Cox, who is an actor and he worked with for years since going mm-hmm. back to the 70s, uh, adapting a book by uh, Shusaku Endo. And, uh, you know, it's funny, I'm thinking about this film and about, trying to sort of categorize Scorsese. He seems to have a multiple sort of speeds. He's got the, he, he's the um, the street fighter kind of filmmaker where he talk, tells tales of desperate, frequently armed men, uh, taxi driver, Goodfellas, Gangs of New York, The Departed, Wolf of Wall Street. And then he's he's the sophisticated. He brings to the screen these, these uh, uh, prestige dramas and biographies, Raging Bull, The Aviator, Age of Innocence, and Hugo. Uh, he's this documentarian, you know, uh, The Last Waltz is a classic. Um, and then, you know, and then he has this sort of small pocket of faith-based epics. Yes. Uh, the Last Temptation of Christ, Kundun, and now Silence. And I think these films all have something in common in that they each ask, at what cost our faith? And uh, at what cost do we hold true to the world, word of God? And I think the thing about silence that's most interesting is that the answer to that question is the most uncertain. I, I think you can come away from it feeling a lot of uncertainty in the filmmaker. I think he's in his 70s now, and I, I feel like none of the answers are any clearer now than they ever were. No, it's it's interesting. I was watching the film, and I was thinking that it was kind of almost like a tr- like the Faith Trilogy almost for him, like that that. 
Last Temptation of Christ, of course, looks at the roots of Christianity and, and takes some liberties with with what we think of as the so-called gospel. Um, Kundun, of course, is is a, a look at uh, the, the the birth of Buddhism in a lot of ways, and then in silence we get the collision of Christianity and the uh, the Shinto, I believe, uh, Japanese uh, form of Buddhism, and how they collide and 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 not in a positive way in any way, shape, or form. Um, so it, it's interesting that it's kind of the culmination of of these films with uh, with the the tenets in in one mashing into the tenets from two and not really finding any common ground of any kind. Yeah, no, it's it's true, and and it's it's a story. The basics of the story is we're in 17th century, uh, and uh, the two uh, Portuguese Jesuit priests, played by Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver, both of whom clearly lost a lot of weight for these roles. They are very <laughs> gaunt. Uh, nice. They are they travel from I think Macau to Japan to on on a mission. Basically, they're looking for their mentor, uh, played by Liam Neeson who uh, the story has that they understand is that he was tortured and he committed apostasy, which he basically, he, he, he gave up his faith. And, um, and as a result, they, they, the two Jesuit priests, they arrive in Japan and they are, of course, uh, their enemy number one, like they can't be there. Uh, and, uh, they are immediately recognizable by their race yes. and by their, their vestments, their robes. So <laughs> they hide out in these small fishing villages where they're able to locate small groups of of Christians who are uh, are are true to the faith and have been hiding their spirituality from the shogunate and uh and so they they see them and they they help them uh confess and they they help them with their faith all the while keeping their eyes and ears open for any sign of this uh this priest that is has been missing and uh and mm-hmm. and as the story goes uh they get separated uh and the Andrew Garfield's character basically is captured and uh, and then the second half of the film becomes sort of a prison drama, as he is tortured and he is his faith is is uh, is pushed to the very limits. Uh, and and yes, eventually does the the connection with finds out what happens to this the Liam Neeson's character. Uh, and it is uh, it is powerful stuff. It, it it asks he is constantly asking himself through voiceover a lot, quite a bit of voiceover whether or not the 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 job of the uh, the church is is doing these people any good whether or not god any if the silence of the store of the title is is the silence of god in the face of all these people suffering and he cannot reconcile the fact that these people are suffering for their faith uh in this in this way and he really starts to get he's very troubled by all of this uh these circumstances um you know and and, and he has his own personal judas this uh this japanese character uh who's played by yosuku kobozuka excuse my pronunciation um you know and and uh and he keeps being betrayed by this guy uh and uh yeah it's funny the film Although we mentioned those two others of Scorsese's that are thematically very similar, it also reminded me of Vietnam epics like Apocalypse Now and The Deer Hunter. It's very much like going up the river to your own personal hell. Yeah, some of that. And, uh, you know, of course, I was constantly reminded of Terrence Malick um, throughout the film uh, for any number of reasons because of the the, uh, the beautiful visuals of the film. 
the focus on on the surrounding nature of of these uh, remote Japanese villages is very sort of thing that Malik would do as he's constantly focused on on uh, the natural world. Uh, the voiceovers, of course, are, are a trademark, um, and of course, uh, the struggle with faith has been a real key uh, theme of uh, the most recent uh, Malik films. So, yeah, yeah. you know, at times I sort of forgot I was watching a Scorsese film and thought maybe I was watching. Uh, uh, Terry at work again. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. And we've, uh, for those of us new listeners out there, we've got a Terrence Malick podcast you can go and find on <laughs> iTunes if you want to see what we had to say about his films. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, the the central tension in the story is is really potent. And, and you're right, those visuals are, I, I wouldn't call it, it's hard to say a favorite scene in a film like this where people are suffering so much. But there is a moment where three of the uh, the faithful are crucified uh, on on a, a shore line where the tide is coming in and the waves are crashing against their bodies uh, and it's it's just and and the two priests are hidden watching this happen and it's uh it's it's an incredible moment and I don't know how they got these actors to do this without risking their lives because it is it is truly I was started to worry about them yeah the 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 film is intense for sure and it's. Uh... It's a real treat to see Scorsese work in kind of an unfamiliar territory in terms of uh, location um, and without the kind of um, visual flash, I guess, of, a, of like a Wolf of Wall Street or Departed or, or you know, or a lot of many of his recent films where, where they're just kind of these super adrenaline fueled. Um, <laughs> yes. I actually kind of really, history. I really like those films, but I, oh, I, I do too. I, I can hear what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I enjoy these films to a great degree as well, but this is, the pacing is so different for him. I mean, you think of like the way the Goodfellas just has that, that from, from the get go, the way that the pacing of that film that is adrenalized thing, so, yeah. uh, so powerful. And, and here he totally takes his foot off the gas. And I, and I in a way that I, I was hard pressed to think of like, when was the last time he made a film like that, that, that wasn't, uh, you know, driven by the, I mean, he's working with his editor, Thelma Schoenmacher, who he's been working with since, I don't know, maybe since, uh, uh, Raging Bull, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, but, uh, but it's, it's really not about the cutting so much as, as the, the kind of more languid pace that, that kind of matches, the, the the life that people were living at that time, it, you know, flashy editing really wouldn't do the no, story any doesn't. justice. Um, you know, in some ways, maybe it was I was kind of reminded of Barry Lyndon, which also has you know, like where Kubrick kind of did the same thing, where he kind of stepped away, ste- from, you know, from the bravura yeah. kind of Clockwork Orange kind of thing, and and had took a more leisurely approach to the story, which works great in the theater, doesn't work so great uh, at home on a, on a home screen, but that's not uh, what these films are made for. Um, true. but when you're in the dark and you're focused on that screen, it, it really is captivating and you really do feel like you're taken into that world. And, um, you know, there, I don't know that, uh, that Scorsese makes many wrong steps in bringing this story, uh, to the screen. I, I've seen a few criticisms of the film kind of take on Andrew Garfield, uh, his performance as as being maybe a bit lightweight for the material. I don't know if that's true. He's, but, he's, he's yeah, a, he's a very, I had no problems with he's it. He's a very handsome young man, and uh, he doesn't look quite as hollow and and frightened as Adam Driver manages to look. <laughs> uh, a driver who is who feels more method than than Garfield. But but it's funny. Andrew Garfield just got nominated uh, for. Hacksaw Ridge, which is a film I don't think is nearly as good as Silence, mm. uh, and I don't think his performance in it as, as a, 
is is as interesting as it is in silence. So I don't know what is going on there with the Academy voters, but you know, again, it's if <laughs> it's hard to know what's happening there. Um, sometimes it, it doesn't their 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 thoughts about what's quality film doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, I I did. I did feel like the film Silence took a while getting started. Like I felt like, oh, it does. I yes. felt like the first hour there could have been a big chunks of that cut out, uh, getting to the place where the real meat of it is being worked on. Uh, and I, I, uh, I felt that was a bit of a slog, frankly. Um, I don't. I think, yeah, I think this could have probably come in at around two hours and might have been a better film because of it. But at the same time, I do understand what he's going for here, and and maybe. I, maybe maybe we need to sit with this film for a longer than your average one just to kind of have it have it sink in into yeah. our psyche. You know? Yeah, I, I didn't have a problem with the earlier stuff because I was sort of fascinated by the idea of these guys being in such a foreign country and you know, foreign to them. Um, and foreign culture and, and uh, you know, evading culture. I guess I couldn't pull like a Sean Connery and you only live twice, you know, <laughs> where he, that, uh, you know, James Bond goes through that horrible, like he, he yellow face, yes, basically, yes, procedure, you know, <laughs> has the heavy lidded eyelids and the yellow mate. Oh God. Uh, not one of the finer moments in that series. Obviously they're not going to go through that sort of thing and pretend to be Japanese. Thank goodness. But, um, but the whole idea, you know, of because I always wonder what it's like for for explorers and and missionaries who are like you know in a culture that's completely foreign to them and where they don't know the ways of the language and and all that kind of stuff and the film does tackle that stuff about how like some of the Jesuits were considered arrogant for not really you know just wanting to kind of push their message onto uh, the Japanese or any other non Christian culture yeah, really totally and uh, you know you know where Garfield is one of the few that's actually like genuinely interested in the people and their culture while still wanting to instill them with the faith uh, as they are instructed to by their higher ups. This is part of the film that I thought was most interesting is how it, it for, for long segments, it feels like a genuine explicit indictment of the way the church had a sort of colonial mandate. Yes. And, uh, and I don't, I don't think it's an, in the end, I don't think it's an indictment of faith itself. I, I think I think it's actually a supporter of believing what you want to believe, but but the structures around it, the institution of the church, is actually it's, I think it's quite critical of it, uh, and that's that I found is really interesting. Um, one thing I did want to say about the film, and I I, I mentioned this in my my review, uh, I, a couple of a few weeks ago, I presented at the library here in Halifax. I introduced Paths of Glory. Ah. Uh, Kubrick's uh, anti-war film or, uh, from the late 50s. And uh, he specifically chose, uh, it's all, they're all supposed to be French. The actors are all supposed to be, they're playing characters who are French. But he, he insisted that they don't uh, put on French accents, that they just sort of act in a sort of a neutral, maybe mid-Atlantic kind of accent, um, with the exception of... of um, Adolf uh, Manjou? Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe, or, uh, or even, uh, Kirk Douglas who, you know, can't help but sound American. Well, yeah. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I found that an interesting, it's an interesting thing and it's something that kind of bugs me about some of these movies wherein English speaking actors are supposed to be playing ca act, uh, characters with, from other cultures. You know, they all put on an accent, like these two actors put on Portuguese accents, accented I guess. English. I guess. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, it, it, I didn't find it hugely convincing, and I actually find that takes me out of the film a little bit. I actually, I sort of wish that that as a 
a Hollywood conceit would kind of end. I just feel like it's a little bit old. It's old school in a way. And I, and I, and I it made me laugh because even uh, Kieran Hines uh, plays a small role in the film and he has a bit of an accent. Uh, and then, but then when we show up, when we finally meet Liam Neeson, he is just Liam Neeson. Yeah. Like he's just, he's Northern Ireland. He's not putting on any kind of accent. He's just, it just is what it is. And, and, uh, and I'm just like, yeah, I don't, I don't know that, that, as a convention, I don't know that that accent thing really works. It feels a little bit silly to me. Anyway, but that's a whole other issue. Uh, oh, yeah. Then you get get into the history of World War II films where German officers have British accents and then they got into having German accents. And then later they actually got more realistic and made them speak in German. Right, right. Yeah. It's this changing thing. It's, it is. It and is. here they just kind of throw it all to the wind. Or something like uh, the Big Red one, which we talked about oh, yeah. uh, as, as uh, some... Some of the Germans speak German. Some of they don't speak. They speak English, depending on the scene. Uh, it's all it's all very strange. But yeah, I I still think I would uh, recommend Silence. I, I I think it's I think the way that it tackles these issues is actually fairly sophisticated. Um, though though uh, it does make me worry about Scorsese and and his his struggles with his faith. <laughs> well, I mean, he he's you know in the interviews for this film, he you know consistently describes himself as a lapsed Catholic. Um, but it's, you know, certainly been something that's been running through his films, uh, going back to his first major feature, who's that knocking at my door? Um, you know, with Harvey Keitel back in the sixties is black and white. Uh, I guess that's his feature debut. There were yeah. some short films yeah, before is, that and everything. Um, but that, you know, that just leapt in with both feet. Even the title is, is, uh, sort of taken from the gospel. You know, I stand at the door and knock and Jesus is. Said to have said, uh, so so clearly that that film is full of uh, religious imagery and so on. But then, you know, Scorsese, supposedly his family wanted him, wanted him to be a priest. So, uh, you know, you can see how that would weigh weigh on him to a, to a certain degree uh, when he decided to become a priest in the Church of Cinema instead of the Catholic Church. Uh, I think he made the right decision. Well, of course, Scorsese is kind of, held up as the icon of, of classic uh, American filmmaking uh, and, and, you know, the great auteur who's still uh, working at the top of his game uh, in recent years with, uh, with a number of, of, of films that have, have pretty much hit it out of the park when you look at Wolf, at Wall, Wolf of Wall Street and The Departed and other recent titles. But, um, you know, it, it was quite another thing in the 1970s when he was kind of part of that new generation of filmmakers like uh, Coppola and... Uh, De Palma and uh, and even George Lucas, you know, when you think about um, THX one one three eight and American Graffiti, um, before Star Wars kind of put him into plastic toyland, um, you know, he it was part of that that early film school generation that you know also gave us uh, uh, Spielberg and and so on. Um, but of course, uh, Scorsese was at it a lot earlier. You know, his first feature, as I mentioned, came out in the sixties, The Black and White. Who's that knocking at my door? And uh, you know, and then of course, uh, you know, he made Taxi Driver with uh, screenwriter Paul Schrader and and uh, and Robert De Niro at, uh, on the strength of Mean Streets, and everything kind of changed uh, overnight. I, that that film was just kind of like this uh, bolt from the blue that you know marked a pr- fairly profound shift in uh, in American movie making. But um, I uh, had the chance to go back and watch uh, an earlier film of Scorsese's um, that he did uh, for Roger Corman. And, uh, you know, a lot of these filmmakers, certainly uh, Coppola worked with uh, Roger Corman and a, and a lot of other great early filmmakers uh, 
you know, got a Peter Bogdanovich as well, and and many others uh, got a foot a foothold in the industry by working on some low budget uh, film. Like Bogdanovich made some outer space movie incorporating special effects footage from a Russian uh, <laughs> Russian sci fi epic. They just uh, bought the film, used the special effects, and then inserted American actors. That kind of thing. Um, but uh, Scorsese got to do something a little different. Uh, he made a film called Boxcar Bertha uh, in the early seventies, uh, starring. Uh, a young and and uh, gorgeous Barbara Hershey as the title character, and uh, paired up with uh, David uh, Kung Fu Carradine as a uh, as a railroad riding uh, union union organizer in the Depression era American South, and uh, it was kind of uh, following in the footsteps of a bunch of these um, backwoods crime dramas that uh, Roger Corman was cranking out at the time: Big Bad Mama with Angie Dickinson and William Shatner, and Bloody Mama with uh, with uh, Shelley Winters and Crazy Mama with Cloris Leachman and and uh, an early role for Robert De Niro, I believe, in that film. So, um, you know, if there's a, you know, a connection with Scorsese and De Niro, uh, an early one to be made, maybe it was there uh, when they were both working for Roger Corman. But uh, Boxcar Bertha has a really strong political thread through it that uh, is not found really in any of these other kind of... Um, Backroads model T wrecking gangster films that uh, that Corman was so intent on putting out, but uh, but uh, Scorsese had uh, Corman's blessing to make the film a little more edgy in terms of uh, you know it's set in the Depression, uh, the whole concept of uh, union organizing of the railroad and other industries uh, being met with uh, the powerful uh, titans of industry and and strike breaking. Uh, uh, agents um, using whatever means necessary to bust up these unions. It was, it was a pretty, uh, you know, considering America was going through a bit of a, of a, bit of a financial slump in the wake of the '60s. You know, we we're going through the dark Nixon Vietnam era, so it was a pretty cogent, uh, pretty pungent film for the time, um, and it's pretty resonant today. Uh, when we see what's happening, <laughs> as a, as someone who's personally been on strike for the past year, I found the. Uh, this film uh, fairly uh, fairly moving and involving, and uh, it's done. It's it's around ninety minutes. It's really brisk. Um, the action scene, there's the action scenes, and there are many action scenes are fairly violent. There's a lot of uh, gunshot violence and a lot of uh, stage blood flying around. Um, Barbara Hershey takes her clothes off at frequent intervals, which I'm sure was a demand of uh, Roger Corman's as a way to make the film more marketable. But Scorsese manages to. You know, even though it's fairly early in his career, he doesn't have a lot of uh, feature film credits to his name at this point. But he does manage to insert a lot of stylistic touches, unusual camera angles, some creative editing um, that really raise it above the level of the standard Roger Corman, um, you know, cheapy uh, exploitation fare. Um, it, it is still exploitation fare, but but again, it does have this uh, political conscience that uh, was kind of sorely needed in American film at that time, certainly in a mainstream cinema. And uh, it's uh, it's pretty compelling stuff. It it did come out on DVD. I I don't know if it's available in other services or not, but it's definitely worth seeking out if you're a fan of his film films at all, even, you know, if just you just things like Goodfellas and Casino and the more popular populist kind of later stuff. Um, It's interesting to see how creative he could be on a, on a very limited budget. And, uh, you know, make something fairly compelling. I think it is a film of its time, but it uh, it wears uh, some pretty strong influences on its sleeve. It uh, has these really strong nods to the uh, Warner Brothers gangster films of the early 30s. Uh, it, 
in fact, I, one of the things I love about the film is that it opens with the credit sequence with um, introducing the characters, the actors as the characters in these kind of vignettes, like these filmed uh, moving credit sequences where you see the, the characters in kind of like a little window in the middle of the screen, which is exactly how those old Warner Brothers films used to, uh, used to open. So it's, it's a pretty, you know, it's acknowledging its debt to films like uh, I Was a Fugitive from the Chain Gang with Paul Muni, which was mixed social commentary with kind of a gangster uh, aesthetic or, or, or maybe Public Enemy with Jimmy Cagney and that kind of thing. So it's, it's uh, you know, Scorsese's love of those vintage films, of course, is well known. And, uh, you know, it's a way that he gets to pay homage to them that he hasn't necessarily done so much in later years, except maybe in things like The Aviator, for example. Um, uh, but, you know, for the most part, his, uh, his nods have been a lot more subtle, I think, um, in his in his later films but here he just gets to do a full-on tribute to classic depression era gangster and uh, chain gang movies i wonder if if people are more familiar with some of more recent stuff whether we could point at uh which of his films sort of really manifested the kind of style that people recognize from those the the gangster the urban dramas that that Scorsese is, I think, for the most part, most beloved for. Like, people love him for Taxi Driver and for Raging Bull. I think maybe Mean Streets is the one that, that came in the year after Boxcar Brothers yes. that has, like, the, the tracking shots and the, the um, you know, the, the, the sort of, the kind of camera movements and the editing style that he is, that people think of him, as, as well as a subject matter. Yeah, well, I mean, Mean Streets is... is a far cry from Boxcar Bertha. It's such a better film in so many ways. I mean, uh, but I still, you know, going back to seeing Boxcar Bertha for the first time in like 20 years or so, uh, I'm amazed at how well it ha- holds up. I mean, you know, it it does look like and feel like a Roger Corman film of the era, but then there's a scene, um, you know, somebody gets nailed to the side of a boxcar and the camera just kind of follows them from the inside of the car and it's this elaborate tracking shot that you would never see in any other film from that studio at that time. So there's, there's so much in it that wouldn't have happened in any other Corman film. And, uh, but it's because it didn't cost necessarily cost anything to do things a little differently than, uh, Scorsese got away with it. And Corman pretty much let him as long as he stayed within budget, he could pretty much do whatever he wanted. Um, but, but mean streets is, is, you know, I, I don't know that there's as much of a personal stake in the box car birth, story aside from maybe some of the political overtones of it but in mean streets uh, scorsese is is on his home turf um you know he's he's talking about the kind of characters that he grew up with in the neighborhood when he growing up in in uh, little italy in, in new york city um and uh, he's just kind of reveling in that kind of neighborhood mythos of his childhood of, of the kind of of uh, the kind of crazy characters that were part of uh, everyday neighborhood life you know throwing uh, bombs into mailboxes and, and and trying to be big shots and and all that kind of thing and and uh, you know and does it with a, a lot of energy and verve. It, it's you know it just kind of comes comes unglued from the the kind of more stodgy style of Boxcar Bertha into something a little more uh, free and and energetic. You know, using using um, you know uh, classic rock and roll tunes to kind of. Uh, affix his sequences to uh it, it all felt very fresh at the time and, yeah. st- and still feels fairly fresh today especially you know when you look at Keitel and De Niro and how young they were in this yeah, film and they, and they seem so hungry yeah uh, exactly yeah there, there is something about that and and certainly that um yeah the way he uses music 
uh, and then this sort of indie aesthetic, like you get that sense that he shot on the fly, uh, whether or not, you know, he did or not. It's hard to know, but it's just, it, it allows for this, this, uh, is, yeah, I think, I think Mean Streets is the, is the movie that, that, uh, that established a lot of that stuff and that we saw it again and again and again. And some other filmmakers, of course, have been inspired by that and have, you, have not done it nearly as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's fun to go back and be like, oh, okay, this is where, this is where this, this comes from. Yeah. There's a certain gorilla handheld on location feel that, uh, you know, he would use more sparingly uh, in films down the road, but it would still crop up from time to time, depending on, on how he needed to use it. But um, yeah, nothing feels quite as wild as yeah. as, uh, as uh, Mean Streets does, and and you know. But then the Taxi Driver has this kind of operatic horror feel to it that uh, you know certainly certainly it's a big step up in so many ways. And and Schrader's script is a big part of that, and he doesn't always necessarily get the credit uh, for that in in the same kind of way. But um, you know, he, I remember hearing like one of the first director's commentaries I ever heard. It was only I think it's been reinstated to more recent uh, versions of the film, but uh, Criterion uh, Laserdisc uh, had a Scorsese commentary, and it was one of the earliest uh, film commentaries. Uh, he did one for uh, for Taxi Driver, and it was one of the first ones that I ever got to hear. And you know, hearing him discuss scenes in terms of things that he'd lifted from old Mario Bava horror Italian horror films from the '60s that at the time that he made uh, Taxi Driver, nobody, you know had seen unless they saw them maybe at a drive-in or an all night um, horror marathon or something like that. But they're, you know, fairly obscure things that had stuck with him and um, you know, the, the use of color and, and, and uh, you know, creative camera placement and that kind of thing that he took from those films uh, that uh, he incorporated into his own language in a whole new way. Uh, you know, it was fairly eye opening to hear what he, you know, what, what he took from his own past to put into that film and make a make a film that doesn't seem to have aged at all. Like you know, forty years later, uh, Taxi Driver holds up so well, even though even though New York City has completely changed from yeah. the vision of it that we get in this film. Um, you know, the 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 kind of decay we see in Taxi Driver is spread to the rest of the country in a lot of ways. It's easy it's easy to forget um, that at the time, the idea of of this sort of character uh, being both. It's something I really like about some movies when it's done well, uh, being both the hero and the villain, and uh, of of the story. Like he's so unhinged, at you you kind of root for him to take the right, make the right choices, to make make the right decisions. But at a certain point, he could he could just be this. He he is in some ways a could be a, a complete danger to himself and everyone around him. And, uh, and that's the thing about it that uh, that we've seen done since. Uh, but I think. I think never quite so potently and and originally. I mean, again, it, we're talking about uh, uh, like Taxi Driver arrives and the the ripples of that film are are being felt uh, going forward and throughout. And certainly, De Niro's sort of iconic uh, performance in that film. Uh, you know, some of the, the dialogue, of course, which still gets sh- still shows oh, up for sure. Um, and um, yeah, and 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 uh, just and the look of it and everything is is something that uh, that yeah, it, it, and I think it's worth saying as well something about uh, the relationship between Scorsese and De Niro and and how that became a model uh, in American film for 
the kind of relationship that uh, it's just you don't see it very often where where one filmmaker chooses to go to the same actor over and over and over again, you know, finding roles for him wherein he where it draws out his best work uh, repeatedly. Uh, I mean, you know, there, I guess there Wes Anderson is someone who likes to use a, a, a sort of a cadre, a group of the same performers. Certainly Bill Murray is probably the one that shows up in every single one of his films. <laughs> and why not? And yeah, and why not? He's actually done great. That, that, that's been great for Murray's career and it's made for some great performances. But, uh, but it's just not something you see very often, but it's really great when it's, it happens, when both performer and filmmaker are working at the peak of their, their energies and really f- working well together. Yeah, I guess it helps that they kind of come from the same neighborhood, the same kind of background. And, uh, you know, I, although, I, you know, if, I, if I'm pressed to think of favorite collaboration, I, for, for some reason, when I think of Scorsese, my, my favorite film, maybe not my favorite, but, but the one that uh, sticks comes into my brain most often is King of Comedy with, uh, you know, with Jerry Lewis and Robert De Niro kind of squaring off against each other as a talk show host and his rabidly insane fan. I'm a little embarrassed to admit I haven't actually seen it. I haven't seen it. I'm sorry to say. I oh my gosh. I you, I well, you know, that, that, that's fine. <laughs> You're, you are in for a treat. Um, it's, it's, it's an amazing film. De Niro gives a very different... It, it's funny because he, it, it's not a far cry from Travis Bickle in the way that his character... Um, is obsessed. Uh, Rupert Pupkin is the, the man who, who just wants to be famous and, uh, you know, and, and focuses on this talk show host, uh, fairly slimily played by Jerry Lewis in, in a, in a performance that you sometimes think is not far from the real Jerry Lewis, but, um, is, is an amazing performance nonetheless, uh, and kidnaps him in hopes of, uh, somehow ascending into his place. But of course that whole, the idea of being obsessed and fixated and, and, uh, Going beyond the uh, <clears throat> the the boundaries of uh, of acceptable behavior to achieve those ends, it's it's very much like Taxi Driver set in the world of showbiz, and uh, and Sandra Bernhardt is great in it too as his kind of accomplice in in all these kind of crazy schemes, um, and definitely worth uh, tracking down. It's 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 a wonderful film that uh, says a lot about celebrity that hasn't really changed much in. <laughs> In, in in the years intervening and, and like you know Rupert Pupkin has no discernible talent aside but his he just has this desire to be famous and you know we see that multiplied in spades in more recent years with so many people that are famous for absolutely no reason at all that we can discern um and it's you know it's darkly comedic in a way that uh, Scorsese often isn't I mean there's a lot of humor in his films um uh you know, anytime Joe Pesci's on screen, you're going to be laughing and recoiling in terror at the same time. But, um, but you know, th- this has maybe more out-and-out comedy, even though it's not a full-on comedy despite the title. Um, in, in fact, I can only think of one film of his that's a real, like, flat-out comedy, and that's After Hours. Yeah, which, which is quirky we, fable. We talked about it uh, in the New York that's uh, right. movies episode. I am a big fan of After Hours, and I, I revisit it. It's funny, you know, I there are some of his films I don't, can't revisit very often, but that's one I can go back to pretty regularly and still get a huge kick out of it. Oh, it's it's an easy one to watch, and in large part because it's so episodic, and there's so many great compacted, you know, compartmentalized performances along the way from Terry Garr and Catherine O'Hara, Cheech and Chong, Linda Fiorentino. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, although I heard someone talking about the film recently, and they said, 
Why doesn't he just walk home? It's not that. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a big. It's not that far. You know, like oh, it's you know, so it's ten blocks to get home. What's the big deal? <laughs> um, you know, he's only in Soho. It's not like he's in the Bronx or anything. Well, it depends, um, I guess, on where in New York he lives. I don't know if that's established. Upper, I think Upper, upper West Side. Upper West Side. Yeah, yeah. I guess he could have walked. <laughs> it's not that far. You know, considering all the hell that he goes through yeah. over the course of the film. But you know, it's one of those things. You know, it's not the Warriors for crying out loud. <laughs> uh, Although it would be fun if he kind of ran into them along the way. Um, but uh, yeah, King, King of Comedy kind of stands out in my mind as one that that, that I return, return to again and again. Maybe, you know, like like Taxi Driver is not a film I obsess over or watch over and over again. And same with Goodfellas. Um, I, I love those films. I, I kind of want it to be a special occasion when I decide to, to rewatch them. So I don't do it like every year, um, as I'm sure a lot of devoted fans of those films do. Um you know, I might go back to Casino rather than Goodfellas, just because it's 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 a lesser film, but there's a, so there's a, but there's a lot of pockets of things that maybe I haven't fully gleaned uh, the value of. Uh, you know, I love the fact that Don Rickles is in there. Uh, that's a favorite thing for me about that film. Um, so there's there's certainly little pockets, and uh, and there aren't too many of his films that I would consider duds. I don't think. Um, you know, I'm not overly thrilled by his obsession with Leonardo DiCaprio, but Silence kind of breaks that streak, at least. Like, I, there's no like he could easily have been cast him as one of the priests or as the main priest in this film, and uh, and maybe the whole idea of an ordeal, a la um, the Revenant, didn't appeal to DiCaprio. I don't know if, if he wanted to make another ordeal film or something. I'm not sure, but uh, uh, we should be thankful that uh, he made some different casting choices this time around. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, and I am host of The Food Podcast. Now, this is not a cooking podcast. We'll talk about the history of food, we'll meet the players in the food world, and we'll explore the ingredients that fill our lives with flavor. Check us out on iTunes and Stitcher. We'd love to hang out with you. One of Scorsese's films that is not beloved, but I like it, <laughs> is The Color of Money from 1986. And, and I have a personal connection to the film. Uh, it, it was one of the ones that I saw at a preview in high school. Uh, I had a film appreciation course, and the professor was a film critic, and he was, uh, he was able to get us preview tickets to see the preview of the film. And so I got to see it in advance of it opening and that was kind of a big deal as part of like school uh which is pretty amazing and uh and you know it has um well it it won it won uh a paul newman his oscar uh which i guess a lot of people thought he should have gotten sooner so it's, it was like a body of work oscar because because a lot of people are like for this movie you know but mm. i actually having revisited it recently i presented it introduced it at uh the Halifax Central Library at a, uh, a recent um, a screening there. Uh, I was lovely to, to go back to it. It has many of the signature moments, things that we like about Scorsese, especially in his urban dramas. Uh, the amazing way he uses the camera, he's swooping around actors. Uh, the music cues are just just amazing. Uh, the soundtrack is terrific. He got Robbie Robertson, his his buddy from the last waltz from the band, uh, to do the score, 
and then he got an amazing uh, collection of musicians uh, to to create songs for the film. Uh, Don Henley has a great song in there. Um, uh, Robert Palmer. And I think a signature moment of cinema and music that I, that always jumps to my mind every time I hear the song, which is Werewolves of London by Warren Zevon. <laughs> You've got the cocky, cocky kid played by Tom Cruise sweeping the table with his, his super cool cue, completely missing the point of what it means to be a hustler. And yet still being kind of amazing, like the physical feat yes. of that moment and, and doing what he does. It's... Uh, it is pretty impressive. It's one of my favorite Tom Cruise performances where he just, you know, at that stretch in his career, Cruise was playing cocky hotshots in different walks of life. Like for 10 years, that was basically what he was doing. He was yeah. always the best at whatever he Cocktail. did when he was on screen <laughs> at that moment. And in this, he was the best cocky hotshot pool player. But he was, but it was great because he needed to play someone who had no self-awareness. Uh, and and that's what a fast Eddie Felson, um, uh, Paul Newman's character, was trying to instill in him and trying to teach him. And eventually he did. He almost taught him too well. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it's a great story. It is the sequel to The Hustler. Uh, but it's not one of those. It comes 25 years after the original film, and it's not a not one of those movies that that relies on the original. It it it, it gives a nice backstory if you've seen the original, but it's not necessary to have seen it at all. Uh, Fast Eddie at this point, he's not a hustler anymore. He's a liquor salesman, and uh, he plays a little pool, but mostly he he likes to hang out with Helen Shaver and bars and sell sell booze, and he's done quite well by that business. He's got a nice car and a nice life. But then he meets the Tom Cruise character after he's he's kind of, he's stake horsing um, uh, 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 John Turturro a little bit in the <laughs> film. But uh, Turturro is nowhere near as good as Cruise's character. And uh, so they go on the road along with Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. And uh, it's, it's great. And there's a lot of like gritty pool hall stuff. And there's a lot of you know, wintry exteriors, uh, which I'm not sure. I, it looks like can, could have been shot in, in Southern Ontario, but I, I don't think it was. I think it was shot in the States somewhere. And it, it's it's got a lot of mood to it. Of course, all that, the, this prowling camera around the pool tables and all of that stuff. It is it is a wildly entertaining film, and I really like Newman's arc. I like how he, he goes from a guy who is like, oh, that's all in the past. That's not who I am. He sort of rediscovers his identity and he he finds his mojo and in in as a man who is you know i presume he's sort of in his 50s maybe late 50s and he's he finds it again and he he really he and it's great he finds some sort of truth in himself and i, I really enjoyed that um yeah and i i would say that um that it's it's a film worth rediscovering for all those reasons um though i also would say that that I think Mass and Tony and Shaver are both really good in it. And one of the problems I have with Scorsese in a general way, <laughs> here we go, is that <laughs> he he doesn't write female characters. I mean, he's telling stories of men, and that's kind of his niche. Uh, it, there, you know, I can count sort of on one hand in the Scorsese films I've seen the vivid female characters, uh, you know, and and there there really there really aren't aren't very many. And that's I think kind of a problem. Uh, but you know, that's just that's the the sort of the that's the the row that he's hoed or whatever the expression might be. That's just kind of that's his deal. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of a shame because the same thing the same thought had occurred to me uh, you know as I was kind of scanning through some of the films for this particular episode. Certainly uh, there 
there are no compelling female characters in in uh, silence. Um, you know, there's, there's barely a char- female character as a, a a line. Like it's yeah. There's yeah. the one wide-eyed young Christian Japanese girl who, you know, then suffers horrible tortures or whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think I don't know, everybody yeah. everybody suffers. Horrible everybody tortures. suffers. Yeah. Um, yeah. but uh, you know, but but you know. You think of uh, the characters and uh, the women in Wolf of Wall Street, for example, or, um, are all kind of trophy wives and so on. Yeah. And Vera Farmiga in The Departed is pretty much the only woman that really has any kind of oomph. She's great in it. I mean, she is yeah. great. But but yeah, it's but a pretty minor role. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, and and it, it's a shame because, of the, I mean, one of his early films uh, that we haven't mentioned yet, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Um, which later paved the way for the sitcom Alice. I remember, yeah, <laughs> with Linda Lavin. But uh, the film with Ellen Burstyn and and Chris Christopherson and and a very precocious young uh, Jodie Foster um, is a wonderful film, and Ellen Burstyn is is terrific in it. Um, and it's you know, but he you know with with Taxi Driver and and Raging Bull and Good, you know, he kind of carved out his niche as um, exploring the. Uh, the the extremes of machismo i guess you know yeah seems to be like a and and power and uh and that seemed to be the the theme that dro- drives his uh his most uh his most celebrated films uh you know i mean silence is the opposite of that i guess but but still again it's all it's all, all fairly male driven yeah and, it's and, and, sausage and, parties uh, but exactly. yeah i i will we i should say though uh it just re- i'm just remembering now that that and credit to to him in this case uh he did direct kate blanchett in the aviator as, to uh, her Kate Hepburn, yeah. as Catherine Hepburn. And she did win an Academy award for that role. So, I mean, that's definitely credit to a, a vivid female character. So, yeah. And, and I guess, uh, I mean, age of innocence yeah. comes to mind. Um, yeah. Uh, Michelle is, Pfeiffer and, and Winona Ryder, they're both pretty great in th- that. They're both pretty great in it. And it, it's a film that uh, is worth revisiting. Uh, I don't think it got a lot to do at the time. Mm. Um, one of, uh, this is a weird side note. I remember, um, uh, there, uh, there used to be a film, uh, filmmaker, film producer, uh, in Halifax, uh, named Angela Pressburger, um, who just happened to be the daughter of Emmerich Pressburger, who the screenwriter who co- consistently worked with Michael Powell, who is sure. Mar- Martin Scorsese's favorite film director. So, right. so she's the daughter of Emmerich Pressburger, who, who was part of this British film team that made some of the, not just some of the best British films, some of the best films ever, Red Shoes, uh, you know, Black Life, Narcissus, Black Narcissus, Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. So, so many amazing films. Uh, you know, Michael Powell did other work without him before and after. But, but when they teamed up as uh, they called themselves the Archers, uh, when they were working together and and made so many wonderful films together. And uh, she had settled in Halifax for a spell. Um, her son, uh, Andrew McDonald, uh, I believe, was one of the producers of, or was Danny Boyle's producer on Shallow Grave and Train Spotter, I believe. Train okay. Spotters. Uh, train spotting, I should say. Um, but she she had settled here for a time um, in Halifax and and worked on a couple of uh, making a couple of films before um, moving out to the states out west somewhere. Uh, but I remember I did a story on her because they were doing a Powell retrospective, a Powell Pressburger retrospective at the Film Fest, uh, and she had a big part to play in uh, Scorsese's uh, restoration and reissue of a number of Powell Pressburger films. Um, 
So what a great story. <laughs> she lives here in Halifax and she had an office on uh, just uh, in a building on Barrington Street. And I walk into her office and the first thing you see is this giant poster for Age of Innocence um, signed to Angela, love Marty. <laughs> like, oh, wow. and, and then next to that is like an original poster for the red shoes and you just kind of like uh <laughs> i don't know <laughs> you know and she's like you know she's got martin scorsese on speed dial and uh and everything. it's just like wow yeah i know um I, you know i don't know if he's ever been in this neck of the woods or not but um you know she certainly uh as uh, a you know, continues to be a friend of his and he's cool. of course still champions his work and in fact uh i love the fact that in um in New York, New York, a film that we sort of mentioned briefly in our musicals episode, the last one that we did, um, there's a scene where uh, Robert De Niro's trying to check into a hotel under an assumed name, and he he checks in under the name Michael Powell, which is, you know, a, a beautiful touch. And, you know, most moviegoers in, in the 70s, you know, probably had no clue who he was. I mean, they may have known about the Red Shoes, possibly Peeping Tom, maybe. But, uh, you know, at a, at a time when it was hard to be a cinephile, outside of New York, LA, and, you know, maybe Toronto and Montreal, that was the kind of a thing that went over most people's heads. But, um, you know, that, that's certainly an element of, uh, his work and presenting and preserving those filmmakers, uh, uh, the, you know, classic work is something to be admired as well. So, yeah, I, I, <clears throat> I totally agree with that. And actually that's a segue, a good opportunity to mention, uh, some of his, his his work as a as a documentary filmmaker, including a film from the mid '90s called "A Personal Journey" with Martin Scorsese through American movies. Yes, that's a wonderful film, uh, and I think it's a it's a television documentary, maybe originally, but it's available and, yep. and can be seen. And and it he talks about his favorite movies going back to the beginning of Hollywood, and uh, it is just amazing. Like you watch it, and you gotta you gotta have a notepad nearby because you want to make notes about all these incredible looking films that you might never have heard of. Uh, it is it's terrific, and and I really. That one, if you are a film fan beyond Scorsese or or just in American films in general, that's uh, that's something to see. And and uh, of course, Scorsese is known for The Last Waltz, but uh, he has directed a lot of of documentaries since then about a lot about musicians and other prominent creative people. Uh, he has um, No Direction Home about Bob Dylan. Uh, Shine a Light, the Rolling Stones documentary from 2008, which is I've seen and is pretty great. Uh, a Letter to Elia, which is the L.A. Kazan documentary. Uh, Public Speaking, which is about Fran Lebowitz. And uh, he did one on George Harrison, Living in the Material World. And then uh, he co-directed The 50-Year Argument, which is about the New York Review of Books. Yeah, and there was also that series on the blues that he did with, uh, I know uh, he directed an episode, Vim Vendors, I think, did an episode. Right. Um, and, and a number of other filmmakers took chunks of that. Um, and of course there's been some work in TV, both great, like Boardwalk Empire. And then there was vinyl. <laughs> right. Um, right. <laughs> uh, a, a personal journey through American film is, is pretty special to me. I, I have it on laser disc <laughs> again, mm-hmm. returning to the old laser discs and, uh, yeah, it's an amazing series. I mean, that's how I found out about Bud Bedecker and, uh, Andre de Toth, the great uh, Western filmmakers. And they also made film noir, but uh, they're probably best known for for uh, their Westerns with Randolph Scott and, uh-huh. and characters like that. And, uh, you know, these really brutal, terse, lean, low-budget Westerns that are are, are pretty intense and, and, and um, you know, very concise. Um, but they're, you know, they're tough and, and have some real uh, 
real interesting things to say about American society at the time that they were made in the 1950s, but well couched within their Western setting. Um, and, and less obvious about it uh, compared to films like, say, uh, High Noon or Shane or what have you. Um, and also film noir, like the Anthony Mann films that he did with, with, with um, cinematographer John Alton. I didn't know anything about uh, him, but, uh, you know, seeing his work, you know, put into context in these very shadowy, foggy um, images from things like Raw Deal and um, T-Men and, and uh, the big, um, not the big gun down, but uh, um, oh, the big combo, which is a beautiful film noir where it's just, you know, you're really straining to see what's happening in some of those shots because there's so much shadow and silhouette and so on. And, uh, you know, that was a real eye-opener for sure. If you can, if you can track that down somewhere, it's, 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 it's a, it's an amazing, you know, it's like a personal film course that'll t- teach you anything you need to know about uh, the uh, the outside edges of Hollywood film. Very good. Um, I want to say one more thing as we're wrapping up here. I can see our time is short. Uh, for those of you out there who are thinking, oh, silence seems like a bit of a slog. I, I only want to see Scorsese when he's doing crime dramas or something. <laughs> uh, he's next movie. Have you heard about his next feature he's got in production or going into production soon? You know what? I did look at the IMDb uh, page and I saw some some interesting stuff on the horizon, but I can't remember specifically which. Well, the one that's expected in 2018 is called The Irishman. And it's about Teamster Bobby Sheeran, oh, okay. who, who apparently before he died, confessed that he would killed Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, oh. De-, De Niro plays Sheeran. Pacino plays Hoffa. Oh, good Lord. Uh, also starring Joe Pesci, Harvey Keitel, and Bobby Cannavale. So, <laughs> you know, it's basically like a, a <laughs> it's like a greatest hits of Italian American mm. actors. Goomba overload. Many of whom uh, uh, that he has, uh, Scorsese has worked with in the past. But uh, I don't know. I can't remember the last movie that De Niro and Scorsese made together. Was it uh, Casino? I think it might be. Oh, good question. Yeah, I think I think it might be. I know that he wanted to do he wanted him for the the Nicholson role in The Departed, but uh but De Niro was otherwise busy and couldn't do it. Um so I think that might be going back that far to Casino. So, I don't know. I, I think this is wonderful news. I mean, I can't think of a, a better subject matter and a better cast to uh to explore uh in the, in The Irishman, which will be out in 2018. Which is funny considering Nicholson played Hoffa in the Danny DeVito film, which which I think is an underrated film that's sort too. of fallen by the wayside, but I I thought it's it's a great uh great Nicholson performance and a really you know, I, I don't know if De Niro or if De, DeVito is kind of going for a Scorsese approach, but it's pretty operatic in its yeah. approach to Hoffa's life and 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 career and uh, and uh, you know visually over the top and, and definitely worth seeing if if you haven't seen it before. Well, that brings to a close our jumpy, sketchy running around look at. The- the life and work of, of Martin Scorsese. There's so many films to talk about, and I'm, we only touched on, uh, you know, some highlights and some obscure corners, and left out a lot of titles uh, along the way. But it's 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 certainly a fun filmography to explore, and and uh, you know, if you're only familiar with some of the highlights, like like Goodfellas and Raging Bull and so on, there, there's lots of little pockets and and niches to explore as well, from his short films to uh, bringing out the dead films. Bring bring there. <laughs> I can't believe I left that one. I really love that film. And, and it's, it's, it's a favorite Nicolas Cage performance uh, and a film that seems to be completely forgotten it's at true. this point. But yeah. um, 
Oh, well, uh, you mentioned it. You got it in there at the yeah, end. Yeah, we got it at uh, the we, end. And we didn't even talk about Cape Fear or, or you know, Life Lessons from New York Stories. Uh, yes, the Nick was, Nolte, Rosanna Arquette. I love that. Yes, it's probably the best thing about that film because <laughs> uh, the Coppola sequence is so painful. Yeah, but uh, the Woody Allen one is actually pretty that's great. That's true because you get Betty Boop, uh, the voice of Betty Boop, Mae Questel as kind of God or something, <laughs> giant floating head in the sky. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but 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 definitely and definitely check out Silence uh, if you're at all slightly inclined to see it. Uh, you want to see it in the theater. It's the best way to see it on a big screen uh, in the uh, immersive darkness of a movie theater, not distracted on your couch uh, at home in the light of day. It's it's a, a gorgeous, uh, visually stunning film. We've talked about the torture and the the pain. It's not that graphic. <laughs> It's 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 not like uh, it's not like torture porn or anything, uh, but um, you know it's it's very. It's, it's not the last temptation of Christ. No, or or or, or the passion, the of passion Christ. of the Christ. Right, right, yes. Yeah, it's it's not the last temptation of Christ either. But no. um, but it but it is a an interesting meditation on faith and and colonialism and uh, and clashing cultures and and it's uh, you know I think it was uh, unfairly uh, snubbed at the Oscars if you give a crap about Oscars um, and because uh, it isn't going to be around for long. And it is a chance to see Liam Neeson in something where he's not wreaking vengeance on somebody. So, uh, so any number of reasons to go see it. Um, uh, I'm Stephen Cook and uh, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at Lends Me Your Ears and you can email us at Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com and I am also on Twitter personally at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And I'm Karsten Knox. I'm your, your blogger and movie dude and uh <laughs> yeah that's me and uh and i'm also on twitter at uh flaw in the iris f-l-a-w-i-n-t-h-e-i-r-i-s and you can of course uh check out our patreon if you feel like helping uh, to support the podcast and thanks again as always to the folks at ckdu fm and the village soundcast network for helping us put this all together Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music, tour dates, and so much more at gypsophilia.org. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.